بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه ومن والاه واهتدى بهداه اليوم الدين as i said we need as a way of connecting to the quran to understand the ayah within its textual surrounding and i i i intentionally called it textual surrounding because there is a difference between context and textual surrounding a context is normally how the text interacts with the society so for example if you write something if you write a sentence out of frustration we can say that frustration is the context of that sentence that's how so social practice affects what you write and there is something that's called like the, the production of the text who is producing it is it one person many people is he in a position of authority or he's not in a position of authority is the for the, for example when the doctor writes something or says something to you is is in a position of authority he is the one to tell you whether to get medicine or not but what i'm talking about here like the lowest layer which is looking at this and looking at what is above and what is what is before and what is uh, after what is in this side and what is in this side in that side so the reciter needs to observe the textual sequence and look for for it in case there is like a reordering in sequence in other words i mentioned before haruna musa musa wa harun why would the quran change the order and what does that signify why does the quran move from a, a grammatical case to another grammatical case and this is very very interesting because it even affects fiqh in fiqh for example we are told that arabs arabs generally they don't separate things that have the same sequence with something external unless there is a purpose how if we have if i say for example akrim al-faqira al-miskina Look at that. Grammatically, Akrim means honor. I'm saying to someone, honor the faqir, the miskeen, the al-haja, wa-talib al-mujidda. Isn't it? Honor the faqir, the poor, the needy, the al-haja, the one who is in need, and the diligent student. But I said, Ahmadu. I put Dhamma on it. I could have said, Akrim al-faqir, al-miskeen, al-haja, Wa-Ahmada, isn't it? But I said Ahmadu. Why did I put it with the Dhamma? Marfu'ah. Yes, it's, with, it's Marfu'ah. But why is it Marfu'ah? Is it possibly li'azim ikhtisas? It is as if I'm saying, take care of this and this and this and that. So, so and so. Like, make sure you, you honor him. So in order to shift, to transfer, to divert, to make a, a turn in the conversation. That means there's something. Why? Possibly he takes care of all of these, but Ahmad is, a, is one of them, but he's hidden. He's not known. Who the, he doesn't actually, or possibly Ahmad is right next to him. He's his relative, so he doesn't think that he deserves to be taken care of. So he said, Ahmad, don't forget that person. 
or possibly Ahmad is his enemy. I'm talking to my brother, and Ahmad is his enemy, so he will take care of everyone, but not Ahmad because he's his enemy. Don't forget him. So the Quran does these things. He, he, it moves from a flow in one direction to an external point and goes back. What does that indicate? It indicates there is some importance. Sometimes I change the order of things. Let's, let me give you an example. Ibrahim alayhi salam, Sayyidina Ibrahim, made a dua when he was building the Kaaba that Allah gives from his progeny a prophet. What did he say? Rasulan, min anfusihim, yatlu alayhim ayatik. Recite your, your what? Your verses. Wa yu'allimuhum الكتاب والحكمة ويزكيهم. يعلمهم means teach them the book and wisdom. ويزكيهم means purify them. Allah سبحانه وتعالى responded to his dua and said in Surah Jum'ah that Allah he said سبحانه وتعالى that he has sent amongst the letters a prophet from amongst themselves يتلو عليهم آياته. Recite the ayat. Same order or not? ويزكيهم well, the answer was not in the same order, isn't it? So two became three, and three became two. What's the point? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just say, To recite the verses, purify and teach. Ibrahim said, said, recite the verses, teach and purify. It is to highlight the importance of purification before teaching. Because you can't teach someone some knowledge. If he is arrogant, he will take that knowledge and it will make him even more arrogant. So you need, the, in, in, in knowledge, in seeking knowledge, you need the student to be in the company of a teacher. To learn from his adab, from his character, before he learns from his action. And knowledge, like real knowledge. They said that the mother of Imam Malik sent him to Rabi'at al Ra'i ibn Abdul Rahman and she said, I sent you to Rabi'at, she put an imam on his head when he was like seven or something like that. Because Malik used to go with his brother, he had a brother called Al Nadr. So he used to go to the, to, to go to the masjid of the Prophet. And one day, one teacher asked Malik and asked his brother. So his brother answered the question and he said to Malik, he asked Malik something and Malik didn't know. <laughs> He used to play with pigeons, like play with toys. So he came home and he had like a, an earring. <laughs> so he came back home and his father said to him, Tal'abu bil-hamam, like shughilta bil-hamam, like he became busy with the pigeons. So when his mom later on, she removed the earring. <laughs> and she's like, and he's a child. And she said to him, and she said, I'm sending, I'm sending you to Rabi'ah, learn from his adab before you learn his, from his knowledge. And subhanAllah, because of that, Malik became Malik. Student of Malik, Abdul Rahman ibn al-Qasim al-Utaqi, came all the way from Egypt and spent 20 years with Malik, not even remembering his wife whom he left behind. Unbelievable. SubhanAllah, unbelievable. He got married and he left his wife and he said, well, I'm going to study with Malik now. She said, no problem. He said to her, like, if you wish, you can be free. She said, no, no, wait. 20 years later, 20 years, he thought, oh, I've left a wife behind. <laughs> it's 20 years later. Unbelievable. 
So he thought, let me ask about him. He looked in the masjid for any delegation from Egypt coming for Hajj and Ziyarah. So he said, do you know anyone from the, this place, like his own place? He said, Naam. He said, does any of you know the family of Abdurrahman ibn al-Qasim himself? And then a young chap, 17 or 18, he comes forward and he says, I'm his son. <laughs> That's it. Uh, basically, I'm your son. <laughs> I'm his son. And then he said, like this, he hugged him. So, so simple. You know, when you read the books, he hugged him and kissed him. Really? <laughs> like if you're out of the house for six days and you come home, your wife will not hug and kiss. <laughs> Possibly. Allahu A'lam. What will happen? <laughs> if you're still alive. <laughs> so purification before what? Before teaching. So whenever the Quran changes its flow, changes the flow that we know, then we need to ask, why is that? Why is it like this? And what benefit is brought in that change? So look at this ayah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَلَقَدْ صَدَقَكُمُ اللَّهُ وَعْدَهُ إِذْ تَحُسُّونَهُمْ بِإِذْنِهِ حَتَّى إِذَا فَشِلْتُمْ وَتَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ وَعَصَيْتُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا أَرَاكُمْ مَا تُحِبُّونَ Uncertainly Allah has made good to you, has made good to you His promise when you slew them by His permission until, that's the battle of Uhud by the way, until when you became weak-heartened and disputed about the affair and disobeyed after He has shown you that, uh, that which you loved. Think about the battle of Uhud. What happened in the battle of Uhud? The Sahaba were commanded to stand on the, the archers were commanded to stand in the mountain and defend the back of the Prophet What happened first? Did they feel disheartened first or they disobeyed first? They disobeyed first. They didn't listen to the words of the Prophet When they disobeyed, the Mushrikeen came, surrounded them, and they went and they started hearing Prophet is killed, the Prophet is killed, so they became disheartened and they said, if the Prophet is killed, what's the point of life? So they became weak and disheartened and that led to what? Led to huh? disbelief. The Quran says, The Quran doesn't want to say to us that they were defeated because of disobedience. Even though they were defeated because of disobedience. But disobedience was a sin. A sin bigger than it is fighting and disputation. They were defeated because of disputation. Because, yes, they disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ, but they didn't remain united. So the Quran wants to say, you became disheartened and disputed about the affair. And disobeyed. It could have, حَتَّى إِذَا عَصَيْتُمْ فَشِلْتُمْ when you disobeyed, you failed. Or When you disobeyed and you, you disputed, you failed. Yes, but if it comes like this, a human mind will think disobedience, disputation, failure. He says, no, 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 no. yes, it's a sin, but put it aside. Put that aside. It's a sin, but put it aside. The reality is, you failed because you disagreed with one another. You failed because you didn't have one leadership. 
you fail because you started fighting with each other and arguing. So he brings what? Failure with weak heartedness with disputation. And then the rest of the ayah follows. So looking at the Quran and thinking, okay, this ayah talks about going to Mecca. Or this ayah talks about uh, let's say uh, doing Hajj. The flow of events should be this and this and this and this and this and this. No, but the Quran mentions something before. فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ One har. Like pray and then one har. Then slow down. So it doesn't mean one har وصلي. The order has a meaning. Like you do salah and then come back. Feed. Fulfill the right of, the, of your Lord and then the right of the people. Salah takes priority over nahr. فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَنَحَرْ so you should always observe in the Quran, bear in your mind how is the flow of events is in reality and is that displayed in the same way in the Quran and if not, why? The Quran doesn't have hazardly put things. No, if there is a shift in words, if the order is changed, there must have been something that necessitates that. Is that clear? Settling the imagined conflict between Quran and scientific. Right. Facts and dispelling incoherence. The question that we always should or we should always ask about the Quran whenever we turn to Quran to justify science or to science to justify Quran. That the Quran is not a book of science. It was never meant to be a book of science. Why? Because science is based on facts. The Quran is based on hmm? truth. I can tell you the facts about something, but I cannot tell you the truth about it. It's a big difference. Big difference. Nowadays, they say science tells us facts, well, which is true, by the way. It can tell us facts. But remember, the um, there is something called... Uh, you know, like a, a hidden trap. There's like a hidden trap in a, in, a, in, a, in a syllogism. You know what syllogism is? Syllogism is like putting too many premises one after another to lead to a conclusion. Logical syllogism. Guy Eaton says, in a long syllogism, the first premise can be false and then everything else is fine. It's fine. And what happens is, people believe it because everything else looks fine. But... The first one was false. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which actually, like the whole thing is, is false. But what happens? The media puts like a little, a little problem there. And because we as human beings, everything after that just falls okay. It's like someone saying to you, you know, this is bid'ah. And then, because it's bid'ah, then, then everything else is like haram, 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 haram. First of all, I didn't agree with this video. You know why? Because that premise is called begging the question. You know what begging the question is? Begging the question is to use the claim as a justification. For example, you say, this man must be insane. Why? Because he killed his mother. But why did he kill his mother? Because he's insane. 
That's begging the question. Well, you should prove to me that he is insane with something that's not a consequence. Does that make sense? It's not a consequence. Like, this person is un unemployed. Why? Because he's without a job. Well, that's what, this, what unemployed is, isn't it? This person, uh, like, he's, he's a... Uh, he must be, like, doing nothing in his life. Why? He's too lazy. Well, that's, that's equally what it is. So, you should never, ever beg the question. In science and the Quran, what happens? We try to say that science tells us facts. Yes, but facts are not truths, by the way. Like a, a little thing, like facts are not truths. So if you want to talk about anything after, talk to me about facts, don't talk to me about truths. Sheikh Abu Ali, I invited him to, to teach, uh, 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 to give a lecture in, in our Husna class recently. He said that he, he brought with him a, a very beautiful presentation. He started it like this. He said, Auntie Matilda, has made a cake. The chemic, the, 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 the people in the lab analyzed the cake and they said, huh? You're gone? No. Um. They said, well, there is this amount of sugar there and there is this amount of flour there. Uh, the mathematicians calculated the numbers. The nutritions calculated the calories. Mm -hmm. All of these individuals have exhausted the cakes facts, factual features. So, does that tell us why Auntie Matilda has made the cake? <laughs> so science tells us how. It doesn't tell us why. Religion tells us why. Well, yes, how did we come to this world? Yes. How? But why? And by the way, even in that, science is imperfect. Because even in its how, its how is limited by how far can you travel. When someone comes, uh, your dad was asking me, what about dinosaurs? Does the Quran tell us about dinosaurs? Well, the Quran doesn't bother about dinosaurs. Whether they existed or not, it's not like a, an Imani thing. People will not become Muslims or non-Muslims. Dinosaurs, marhaba. Like if a dinosaur come out now, I would say, say, ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Isn't it? So, you know these uh, Muslim dolls, you know the, the ones that, uh, that, that they sell in the shops, like really bad quality, subhanAllah, really bad quality. When I bought, like we bought one for my, for my daughter and we ended up throwing it in the bin because all the, all the, mashallah, the hijab came off. And <laughs> that was the worst thing, <laughs> the hijab. No, I think the hijab even didn't come off. Everything else came off but not the hijab. <laughs> Very steadfast. <laughs> I have a video of her, I said, like, what happened to her? We used to call her Maimuna, so I said, what happened to Maimuna? She said, she's miskina. She's miskina. I said, what happened to her? She broke. <laughs> she wants to say, like, her, her leg is broken now. So, sometimes, we, we commit that, we fall into that trap. Quran is not a book of science. Should we hold the Quran accountable for scientific tafsir? No. So if someone comes out and he says, well, subhanAllah, I've discovered something that nobody has discovered before me. You know, the Quran speaks of the expansion of the universe. The universe is expanding. Scientists say the universe is expanding. And the Quran says, We are expanding it. We built it with power. We built the heavens with power. And we are increasing it. Is that a Quranic fact? 
Well, remember that the Quran is not a book of science. So, but science says that. Let them say whatever they want. If then we have in mind that the Quran is revelation and we are required to use God-given tools to learn, then we will have no problem between science and the Quran. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, use your intellect, use the factual tools that he has given to you. So scientific discoveries then, we can say scientific discoveries are of two categories. There is theories, and remember, theory has been proven or not. Theories are normally proven or not. Huh? No, they are proven. They are proven. Like the theory of evolution. Proven. Like, but remember, proof is, is, a, very, is a very loose, loose, loose thing. You know, I like in intelligent Muslims, and I believe that Muslims have to be intelligent. Now, intelligence is farda'in, is an individual duty. It's not a collective duty. You can't just like let a group of Muslims be intelligent and everyone else is dumb. People <laughs> have to be. Seriously, wallahi, this is, this is not a joke. Muslims have to be intelligent, have to be super intelligent. And the only way to do that is put, your, put all your gadgets and start reading and read what others write, not what we write about ourselves. Like stop buying these books that are published in Pakistan and like read like good quality books and look at other names or like I mean like names of individuals and not Muslims who have the same cause, who have the same direction. In history, whom should you read for? Uh, in, in theology, there is a man called um, Robert George. He's a professor of uh, law, theory of law in, a, in, in the United States. Very good conservative. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking about political conservative. I'm talking about intellectually conservative. Muslims, for a long time, they have been very liberal. They side with liberal, liberal, uh, liberal ethos. And that's wrong. Why? Because liberal, liberalism tells you, yes, everyone is equal, but as we accommodate you, you should accommodate others. But we have moral stances that we cannot accommodate. So Muslims need to be, need to be seriously conservative in their intellectuality. There is a man here in the UK called uh, Vernon Scruton. I think uh, Roger Vernon Scruton. He has a book, I think, called what, what It Means to Be Conservative. And he, by the way, he's politically not conservative. And he says political conservatism has caused so much damage to conservatism. But intellectually, you should be conservative. Robert George is an American conservative. He talks about... He has a book called Clash of Orthodoxies. He says, secularism is presenting itself as an orthodox secularism. And Islam is an orthodox religion, so it's a clash of orthodoxies. And he takes loads of things, like the, the subjection of children for, for, for like things that we, we don't like and all of these things, and he demolishes them one by one. Intellectually, he says, by the way, this is not a religious debate, nor this is a religious evidence. I'm talking about, I am proving to you that religion has more rational proofs. Its rational proof is, big, is better and more sensible than somebody else. So it is, it's, it's very crucial that we, we stop like reading Harun Yahya and all of this nonsense. All of this complete, honestly, all of this complete nonsense. And we need to move into like, like strong, solid, serious reading. It's difficult to make that, that move, but it, it's, it's a completely different perspective and understanding of life. So theory, let's say, theory, if something is theoretical, then we can, and, and the Quran 
can accommodate that, then we can say, fair, fair, fair enough. The Quran doesn't disagree with it, nor does it agree with it. But hypothesis, it should be put aside. So, what's the origin of man? Where did man come from? Well, the Quran clearly says that human beings have been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that we all came from Adam alayhi salam. Is there intraspecies development and evolution? Yes, possible. Because you are not the same color or the same ability or the same hip. Your bones are not the same bones of your great-grandfather. Your ability is different. You are not eating the same food that your grandparents have been eating. So that will show on your molar teeth. It, definitely it will show on your molar teeth. Your skin, the texture of your skin is different. So there is, there is, there is the, this is the space. But while we are saying that the Quran cannot agree, let's say for example that man has come from apes, Islamically, Quran says, well, no, we're all coming from Adam alayhi salam. So we have a moral stance against this. Other things have come without a creator. We have faith stance against this. We have narratives. So at least we say, well, there is a narrative that's presented and unverified, and there is a narrative that makes more sense. So leaving the Quranic uh, texts on their generality and open scope. This is very important. When we deal with science, and if we find ourselves in no position except to justify science by the Quran, Quran by science, let's say, okay, the Quran doesn't agree or and it doesn't disagree either. Let the Quran be general as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed it general. But trying to force the Quran to justify something. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِن كُلِّ شَيْءٍ خَلَقْنَا from everything we have created, couple. Some people will say there is a male and female of everything. But that's not true. The reality is not true. And you know what the problem is? It's not in the Quran. It's in your understanding. Allah did not say we have created a male and female. He said Zawjain. Zawjain Arabic means couple. Means two. Has, have you heard of the amoeba? Yeah. Is it a male and female? It doesn't produce through, through mating, isn't it? It's one cell. It's a cell. Yes, it's a kain. It's a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what could mean that what is the amoeba made of? Atoms, isn't it? Cell. And in the cell, in every cell, there is a positive and negative. So you don't have to say like male and female. Otherwise, you'll get yourself into trouble. Because if you say the only way of procreation is mating of males and females, someone will come out, excuse me, there is something called amoeba. It's a small being that does not actually mate and there is no male and female. So science will disprove your understanding of the Quran. You don't have to make that conclusion. You don't have to make that conclusion and say, well, production is... No, 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 no. But we say... That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established sunan, laws, amongst different species. And it is these laws that we need to follow. So between humans, the way of procreation is male and female. Between animals, male and female. Between other beings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is badiyah, isn't it? He's, the, he's innovative. He can create in an unlimited way. So he can let amoeba grow like that. But you tell me, and I... Can, can respond to that. You tell me, what value does amoeba have in life? Like, what role does it play in the society? 
Well, it's just a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It has a wisdom, definitely, but it's not going to play a role in this society. But animals, they need to recreate in a, in a, in a proper manner, and we eat them. We feed in them. So whether we believe it or not, there is like a, a side uh, of what we eat that, uh, that affects who we are. Right? So that's, that's basically uh, talking about Quran and science. Observing the linguistic subtleties and ellipses. Mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes in the Quran mentions a conclusion without mentioning the premise. As I said, in syllogism, you have a premise. Let's say, for example, uh, if we say that there is many of us, a spacious place can take or accommodate many people. This room can accommodate many people. Therefore, this room is spacious. So, if I say this room is spacious, there's a conclusion. What does it hide behind it? Premises. Syllogism. Line of thinking. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might mention the conclusion without the premise. Sometimes mentions the premise and it doesn't mention what? Conclusion. It's like if I'm saying to you, if I'm saying to you, this is fair. That means you can, you can deal with it. This is unfair. You can do it. Mentioning the destiny indicates the roots to it. فَإِذَا أَفَضْتُمْ مِنْ عَرَفَاتِ Aha, when you come from Arafat, فَذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ عِنْدَ الْمَشْعَرِ الْحَرَامِ Then come to, uh, then remember Allah at Al-Mash'ar Al-Haram. Did he say, فَإِذَا أَفَضْتُمْ مِنْ عَرَفَاتِ to where? Like when you come from Arafat to where? Did he say? No. He said, when you come from Arafat, remember Allah at Al-Mash'ar Al-Haram. Does it, did the Quran say, when you go from Arafat, go to Al-Mash'ar Al-Haram? No. But since you're commanded to remember Allah at Al-Mash'ar Al-Haram, Obviously, you'll need to be there. When I say, uh, please make sure that you visit such and such bookshop in Birmingham next weekend. What does that mean? You will be in Birmingham next weekend, so make sure that you... Right? So mentioning a destiny indicates the roots to it. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلِلَّهِ عَلَى النَّاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ Like it's incumbent upon you to, to, to do hajj. What does that mean? That means mention a destiny. It all the roots to it. Whether you are in Europe or America, whether you take the plane or take the train or take the car or walk or swim, all the routes are available. Right? Unless it's a private route. Then you can't take that for a different reason. Mentioning a cause indicates what? A cause. And mentioning an effect indicates a course it's like very logical subhanallah there is a book i think it's called uh, rhetoric and logic in the quran something like that written by an english professor uh, i'll possibly send it to ridwan i'll take a picture of it and send it to, to ridwan it's very very interesting uh, looking at how logic is represented in the quran and in arabic there is a book called tafdilu mantiq al quran ala mantiq al yunan preferring the logic of the quran over the logic of the greeks by Al-Alama ibn al-Wazir al-San'ani al-Yamani rahmatullahi who is a Zaydi imam but it's like a Zaydi scholar but it's an amazing book he basically says that the logic of the Quran is far better than that of Greeks so taking some examples here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمْ الْمَيْتَةِ وَالدَّمُ 
ولحم الخنزير وما أهل لغير الله به والمنخنقة والموقوذة والمتردية والنطيحة like the meter is prohibited for you والدم and blood ولحم الخنزير and the flesh of a swan you tell me when you slaughter a pig what do you slaughter it for when you slaughter an animal what do you slaughter it for eat eat and everything else comes in consequence as subsequent to that using the leather tanning it using the horns isn't it that's subsequent it's not original purpose so if allah wants to say that everything else is prohibited he will say to you if the meat is prohibited then It is because of this that the ulama took it that khinzir pig is impure. Even though well, uh, elsewhere in the Quran there is no mention of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَلَحْمَ خِنْزِيرٍ فَإِنَّهُ رِجْزٍ And the flesh of a swine for it is rijz, it's impure. So if the lahm is impure then everything is impure. Right? This is this conclusive here. Because everything else is just following. Even though in the Maliki school, the Maliki school agrees with all the other schools that everything in the pig is, is, is impure, including the skin. Even though there is a view in the Maliki school, that's not the, that's not the, the, the official opinion of the school, that, the, that if, the, if the skin is, is tanned, it becomes pure. But that's a very weak opinion. But what is valid in the Maliki school is that ha the hair of the pig is not impure. The hair is not impure. Why? Because there is no life in it. Does it make sense? There is no life in it. Is there life in the hair? No. Yeah, if, if I cut your hair now, will you feel pain? No. Yeah, but if, if I cut your uh, finger? Yeah. yeah. So there is no life in the hair. Yeah. So because there is no life in the hair, it's allowable. So basically, imagine if someone has got a, a skull problem and he needs to use a hairbrush that's made of uh, pig's, pig, pig's hair. He's allowed. There is a way out. You see, the Sharia accommodates for this. Didn't know that was a thing. Huh? Didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. A, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. It is something. I'll give you another example. What if it is needed for medical purposes? Or like sewing. We'll go and ask anyone here is a doctor? Or to do anything with medical field? Sometimes they need the, the, the hair as strings ah. for sewing wounds. Yes. Is silk prohibited or not? Yes. But can you sew uh, a wound with silk? Yes, if it's needed. There is a need here. There is a genuine need. So remember that the Sharia is not like with a paintbrush, with like a paintbrush. It's like haram. Okay. In my madhab, it's haram. No, the Sharia is far bigger than, than than all of this. We spoke before about the issue of the dog, for example. The dog, Imam Abu Hanifa says it's the saliva that's impure. Everything else is pure. Imam Shafi'i said everything is impure. Imam Malik says everything is pure. Everything is pure. Why? There is no mention of the dog in the Quran. Where is the mention of the dog in the Quran? That is impure. In fact, the Quran mentions the dog as something very honorable and respectful. 
the people of the cave, cave they had a, a dog right next to them. So there is no mention. The Quran could have mentioned the dog right next to the khinzi. Oh, but the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, like washes seven times. That could be a recommendation, by the way. It could be recommended. Not necessarily it's, a, it's an incumbent. Bearing in mind that Imam Malik also is a hadith master. And when he investigated this hadith, this hadith in hadith criteria is called muttarib, confounded. There is contradiction between the narrations of this hadith. One narration says, wash it seven times the first with dust. Another narration says the last with dust. A third narration says one with dust. Which one should we take seriously? Is it the first and second or third? Because of this, when in hadith, I'm talking about hadith here. Because of this, we suspend the hadith. Suspending the hadith means it doesn't become a source of you have to. It can become a source of please do. But not you have to. And Imam Malik also said, Allah allowed us to eat what is hunted by the dog. Right? In the Quran, isn't it? In the Quran, what can you hunt with? What do you hunt with? Dog. Isn't it? What do you hunt with? Do you hunt with your uh, nails? <laughs> <laughs> what do you hunt with? Forks. Huh? Forks. And? Dogs. Dogs, yeah. You hunt with animals? Actually, the Quran uses the word kalb, mukallibina. Mukallibin, train. And the, the Arabic word for dog is kalb. Because kalaba, because the dog is the easiest trained animal for hunting. It's the easiest one. And the hadith of Sayyidina Adi ibn Hatim al-Ta'i radiallahu ta'ala when he came to the Prophet sallallahu and said, Rasulullah, I send my dog and others send their dogs as well. Which one should I eat? He said, eat what your dog has hunted as long as you mention the name of Allah. So now when the dog hunts and brings it, let's say the dog brings something back. Does it bring it with its hands or with its mouth? There is nowhere in the Sharia where it says wash that thing seven times. <laughs> and you're eating it. It's not licking. Add to that that the, in Medina, was Medina full of dogs or not? It was. The hadith very clear that the dogs used to jump into the masjid of the Prophet Do you think that the masjid was like blocked walls? No, no, no. no. Very low walls. Seriously. Very low walls. Just pillars. The kilab will go in. No carpets. Nothing. The Sahaba used to pray on like uh, pebbles. So a society that's full of, has a lot of dogs like this. Saying to people like you have to wash. It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. So Malik's, the opinion of Malik is very strong in that. It's very strong. Bearing in mind, by the way, that Malik doesn't allow keeping dogs as pets. It's not allowable in the madhab of the Malik. You can keep dogs for one or three, one of three reasons only. Either hunting or guarding or farming. If you have one of these valid purposes, but just I want to have a dog because I like having dogs or my daughter wants to have a dog. No, it's not allowed. We have two different, two, two different categories of dogs. Al-ma'dhunu fi wa ghayru al-ma'dhunu fi. The one permitted and the one not permitted. Should no. I ask you, um, it's almost blind, is that permissible? Of course, it's a valid reason. But bear in mind also, even those who are allowed to keep dogs for a valid purpose, you're not allowed to sell the dog. Selling dogs are not, is not allowed. Even those that are permissible, you can't possibly get it as a gift. 
but you don't breed dogs to sell them. You don't make that as a business. Why? Because again, Malik moves with the hadith. Wherever there is a hadith, Malik goes with it. Where there is a amal of Medina, the people of Medina have done something, خلاص, they have seen tens, tens of thousands doing this, they have seen themselves tens of thousands doing this in front of the Prophet The Prophet does not, did not allow, in the Sahih Muslim as well, he did not allow the price of the dog. So going back to this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Banu Israel woke up one day to find that one of them is dead, he's been killed. And he's in the streets. They thought, who has killed him? Who has killed him? No one knows. So they go to Musa salam. What did Musa salam say? Slaughter a cow. After much deliberation, back and forth, they said to Musa, what is a cow? What's the color of the cow? What's a cow? Finally, they found the cow. They got the cow. They slaughtered the cow. They got a piece of it. Musa salam said, فَقُلْنَ ضْرِبُوهُ بِبَعْضِهَا Hit it with a bit of it. This is how Allah brings dead back to life. Well, this is just a jump from hitting to this is how. There is a jump. What is the, what's in the jump? They hit it. They hit the person. And he came back to life. And he told them. So Musa salam said, this is how Allah. So when you read the Quran, you should understand that there is so many things that are unsaid. But it's understandable only to the qualified, and you need to observe that, right? Observing the objectives of repeating a statement. Mm. Sometimes, the Qur'an repeats a statement. It doesn't repeat a fact. It, repeats, it doesn't repeat a detail. It repeats what? A statement. And that could be either to refer to a similar reality, so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ And in another place, يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ It might sound to any of you the same. يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا أَنْ أَنْ يُطْفِئُوا But linguistically, they're not. Why? Because يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يُطْفِئُوا أَنْ يُطْفِئَ is an infinitive form. يُرِيدُونَ إِطْفَاءَ يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا this lamb refers to the purpose. So, if you do something for the first time, I say, I know that you did that to embarrass me. That's one time. But if you keep doing it, I say, I know that you keep doing, you do this in order to embarrass me. <laughs> so the lamb indicates what everyone, that purpose, that the purpose doesn't, it didn't happen once. It happens continuously. So why would it be يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا and يُطْفِئُوا They're referring to two different actions, two levels of action. Given an indicative dosage of admonition. Like imagine one of your children, for example, does something and then you tell him, don't do this again. A day later, don't do this again. And later, didn't I say? فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى with difficulty comes ease. That's not repetition. Well, in fact, the, this yusr and this yusr are in indefinite form. While al usr is with al, the definite. فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى And in Arabic, if you repeat something and it's with the definite form, 
it in the, with the definite article, it means it is one. So for example, what did you do with the house? The house you wanted to buy. What did you do with the house? The house that you wanted to buy. Is it one or two? One. Have you met? I have met a man uh, today whom I haven't met in 20 years' time. Uh, another man, you see? Another man I met today, I haven't met in, for, for the last 10 years. You're talking about two. So Yusr and Yusr, this is a Yusr, this is ease, and this is ease. Why did he say, فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَ إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَ Because before difficulty, when difficulty comes, there is one ease with it, and there is another ease with it. One ease is psychological. Allah makes you ready for it. The other ease is the fact that it has stopped another evil from coming to you. So these are two different types of ease. Or that it will be followed by another ease. So there is like an ease that come after it. A relief. So that these, re these reliefs are two different reliefs. It's not one. So representing a different style for different audience, for example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ Surah Al-Rahman, quite repeatedly. When he speaks to the angels, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ When he speaks to the jinn, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ For the people in Jannah, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ For the people in the highest Jannah, فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ Of course, when you speak to two people who are enjoying two different lifestyles, when you say to them, did they treat you well? You're not talking about the same thing. You're talking about two different things. Or depicting different situations. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Qala about the, the disbeliever in, in, in Akhirah, Qala Rabbi Rji'oon. He will say, My Lord, return me. In different places. It's a different situation. When he sees the angels, Qala Rabbi Rji'oon. And then, no, you can't go back. And then when he sees that biggest fear, Qala Rabbi Rji'oon. Like, I want to go back. It's like you imagining. Oh, I haven't had such a good life before. And then you are elevated to something as well. You know what? Everything before is, was nothing. This is much better. And then later on, basically your expectation go higher and higher with your experience. Right. Tracing the etymological and derivative use of Quranic words. And this is very important. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about al-faqir al-miskin. In the Quran, give... Uh, to the fuqara and to the masaki. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barak ala Sayyidina Muhammad, innama as-sadaqatu lil-fuqara'i wal-masakini wal-amilina alayha wal-mu'allafati kulubu. We understand that the faqir and the miskin both have a need. But what's the difference? They said, al-miskin the miskin, the needy, shows his need, whether it is real or wrong. <laughs> like he keeps saying, well, I'm in need, I'm very poor, life is very difficult for me. But the faqir is a person who has a need, whether he speaks about it or not. So you tell me, which one will you give attention to first? Yes? So wherever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the fuqara and the masakin, he mentions the fuqara first. Why? They're embarrassed. They're shy. The one who doesn't talk. 
So when you give your zakah, when you give your sadaqah, you should look for those who are not going to talk, which we call today the silent people. The silent people who don't talk about anything, suffering from abuse, suffering from poverty, and they don't talk. But the one who's talking, the one who has left his name in every charity organization, brother, if you get any sadaqah, please, you know my number, 111111, charity. That person doesn't need to be highlighted because he will come forward and ask. But there are these people who are in distress, but they're so dignified that they don't disclose. So dealing with that situation, which one will you support first? The faqih. So you need to understand. Fakir and miskin. yes, etymologically, they refer to the same thing, but there is a subtle difference. And Abu Hilal Askari, a linguist, great linguist actually in Arabic language, has a book on uh, the mutaradifat, the synonyms. In English, we've got synonyms, but these synonyms have like a, uh, uh, like a, uh, a slight of difference between each one of them. So house and home, these are, they might be referring to the same thing, but one refers to the structure, the other, the, the other refers to, you can't call a room, for example, house. You call it home. You can call it home. So look at, look at these subtle differences. The word vanna in Arabic. Vanna means in Arabic two opposite things. It means to be certain and it means to be doubtful. It means the two opposite things. But it depends on context. So for example, uh, when I meet you in Hajj, and then you say, Subhanallah, I was expecting to meet you uh, because you told me, because I've read your name in, uh, in, the, in the group. And I say, meaning, I was sure of that. I was sure if we're in the same group. But when I say, I think we will arrive one time. Allahu I think. So sometimes when you come to al-satil, van is like a big spectrum. It covers from 51% all the way up to 100. 99. Once it hits 100, it's called yaqeen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, حَتَّى إِذَا أَخَذَتِ الْأَرْضُ زُخْرُفَهَا وَالزَّيَّنَةِ When the earth takes its beauty and it becomes very full of technology as we call it وَظَنَّ أَهْلُهَا أَنَّهُمْ قَادِرُونَ عَلَيْهَا and its people ظن that they are have control over it do people nowadays feel that they have control over earth as a doubtful thing or as a certainty certainty if you ask scientists they will say everything is under control so ظن here means and its people believe they have but why does the Quran refer to their belief, their certainty as one? Because in reality, it's no certainty. It's actually one. It can't even be, it's even shak, right? To refer to you, like, hold on a second, by the way, this is not the certainty. He could have said, and its people have become certain. But he said, they say, even though you think, it, you think of it as certainty, but it's not. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَقَالَ الَّذِي ظَنَّ أَنَّهُ نَاجٍ مِّنْهُمَا Yusuf in the, in the prison said to one of his companions that you will be freed and you will go back to the service of the king. Right? 
So one of the two was invited one day to, the meet, to meet the king and he was killed. The other was invited to meet the king, but before he was taken to the king, he was dressed nicely. So when he's dressed nicely, when he's dressed nicely, what, what, what uh, conclusion would he make? So what would he think? Is there a certainty? Huh? Is there a certainty? Yes. yes, that's kind of a level of certainty, but it hasn't reached the level of the full level of certainty. It hasn't reached the full level of certainty. Also, looking at the um, how the Quran uses certain words like al-yam and al-jub. In Arabic, in Arabic language, we have a word for the sea, bahr. And we have a word for the sea as well, yam. But that comes from old Egyptian language. And one of the things that uh, some of the linguists noticed is that wherever the Quran speaks of the sea, in the story of Musa السلام, in Egypt, he uses that, that word. Even though that word is not, is not Egyptian anymore. That word is actually an Arabic word because it has actually moved into Arabic language. They, we call this uh, language borrowing. There is this, this uh, phenomena of language borrowing where different languages take from one another, they share things, they take words from one another, they take even concepts from one another. So again, you know, b back to Austerlitz, uh, empire of words. You can you can have a look at that and see how languages actually borrow from one another. Yes, I wanted to mention earlier before um, before the break. That, um, I'm not sure if I have shared with you a book called Plastic Words. Plastic words. Words. Yeah. Have I shared that with you, City? Okay. I'll possibly share that with you. I I think this book is, is really important for people to to read. It's a very small, tiny like tiny book, 160 and six pages or something like that. But it's very expensive on Amazon. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sold for about 11,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. I, it's unbelievable. It's 11,000 pounds on Amazon. I didn't buy it for 11,000 pounds. <laughs> Don't take me wrong. Uh, uh? Not even a thousand. I, I actually had to dig for this book for about two years. And uh, what intrigued me to even look at it more was um, I decided to, uh, uh, to, to check it in the, in the British Library, and it's not available in the British Library. And the Birmingham University, when I took it to my librarian, they, um, they said no, this, uh, they, they looked for it everywhere, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't locate it. So I, I actually ended up buying, buying the book itself. I bought it for 160 pounds, so it's not much compared to 11,000 pounds, but it's actually worth, worth getting. Huh? It's one of, sorry? Huh? It's called Plastic Words, The Tyranny of Modular Language by a man called Uwe Perksen. Have you found it? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's on discount, like £294. Oh, yes. No, 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 it's not a discount. That's, not a that's another form. Uh, that's basically another version of the book. It's, it's very interesting because um, I have heard about this book like three years ago or something like that from Sheikh Yahya And then um, when I started looking for it, I was like, wow. This book can't be uh, that expensive. And um, when I bought it and started reading it, I realized why is it expensive. Mm -hmm. It's one of those books that, you, that opens your eyes 
white to think about the world in a very different way, uh, in a very different way. So mainly this man is a linguist. He says he was invited to a, a conference in Argentina and um, he goes like that. He says we have 5,130 uh, uh, languages in the world, right? 5,130. That's like that's what's remaining now. How many of these languages are spoken in the world today? 45% of the world population speak seven languages. Just seven. And then 60% of the world population speak 12 languages. The seven and another, and another five. So 12 languages are spoken by 60%. 95% of the world population speak 100 languages. That means 5,000 languages are spoken by, by 5% of the world population. That shows how less diverse we are. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Europe in general, we have, he says we have about 36 uh, states in Europe speaking 72 languages. Actually, Europe is the least diverse place on earth. The most diverse place on earth is India. Like it's loads of languages and dialects are spoken. That's not the disaster yet. The disaster is this. He says of all of these spoken languages, we have a bunch of words between 50 to 100 that dominate our day-to-day -day conversation. Dominate the media, politics, uh, social studies, academia, even the municipality. And he says that these words are quite problematic in two, in two senses. Number one, they're being scientized and mathematized. We have, let's, let's imagine, let, let's put it, because this is a bit, a bit difficult. Let's imagine that we've got like two jugs. One is called vernacular language. You know what vernacular is? Yeah. Spoken language, daily spoken language. And the other is called science, right? Scientific. Scientific language, right? We have a word here. This is flexible. Why? Because when you use a word here, it's flexible different human interaction, yeah. but science language is rigid. So let's take a word like information. The word information historically meant to train. To inform means to train someone to do something. It doesn't mean to give someone something. It means to train someone to do something. For example, inform me how to fix a car. It means train me how to fix a car. Up until 1920, the word information meant to train. It was a process. 1950 and 60, the word information was moved, was taken from this jug and put into the object of science and was associated with the word data. Data is fixed, is rigid, because in data you cannot fight. With data you cannot fight, but with information you know. I disagree with that. And what happened is when it became here, they kind of eliminated the process and made it object. And they invented things to foster this new usage. So information became information bank. Now you are pushing into a direction to say, well, information is, is something, is an item, is an object. So information bank, storing information, releasing information, mm -hmm. Information technology, uh, freedom of information, that's a policy, right? And it was sent back. 
with the new face. And it became a plastic word, like a Lego. It can fit in anything and with anything. And it became very abusive. Why? You have information, you have authority. I have no information, I have no authority. Does that make sense? So he says that science is very imperial. Science is very imperial. When you move it from here to there, it becomes very imperial and indoctrinating. It's like a doctrine. It's like a, a dogmatic. Yes, science is science as, as long as it remains within the parameters of science. But once it moves to our life, it becomes dogmatic. Like nowadays, scientism is governing the world. So he says that's very rigid. And also, mathematization is a word like this, becomes like a number. One, two, three, four. These numbers, what do they have? Do they have a physical reality, which we call in Mantik, al-wujud al-khariji, like something that exists in reality? Or does it have an intellectual reality, al-wujud al-dhini? One does not have an existence outside. When I say one, well, that's not number one. That's a manifestation of one. When you bring two oranges, you say two. Well, but in fact, these are oranges. Two is, a, is, a, is an intellectual category. It doesn't have a reality. It doesn't have existence out there. But what does it have? Manifestation. Mm -hmm. That's why if someone brings two pencils and he presents them to you, can you say that's not two? No. It's two. If someone brings two houses, two. Two trees, two. Two human beings. Two, isn't it? But what is two? It's an, it's a number. Where does this number exist? When we say dual, odd, and even, evenness and oddness, where does it exist? In your brain. Actually, this this is uh, Sheikh Hamza speaks extensively about that as a proof against atheism. Because in atheism, if you don't want to believe in the existence of what you cannot see and sense then don't believe in numbers. Because categories are intellectual, they have only intellectual in, intellectual existence. So he says, this, this word becomes like a number, a historical, can fit under anything. So you use the word information, you say, for example, just analyze any political discourse or any speech given by anyone in authority. You will realize that it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like the conclusion is, doesn't mean anything. We have, a, we have, we have met. We have met. I had a very productive meeting, and we have agreed that information should be shared between the parties involved, and we should agree on the future of our cooperation. Mm -hmm. What did you get out of that? Tangibly, nothing. So he makes a list of a hundred words, which he calls plastic words. Right? Very interesting. For example, one of the plastic words is sexuality. This is like this word has become twisted after 1960 and 1970. The word education, the word system. What do you mean by system? Management. What do you mean by management? The word democracy, development, information. It's amazing. SubhanAllah, that, that book is, you know these books that are mind liberating? Just like need. And he says, words are, language is a mediation between thought and reality. It dominates people if the thought that is reflecting is ill-orientated thought. It's such, a, it's such a good book. 
I have, uh, I, I scanned it. <laughs> like I got someone to scan it, I have a PDF. I'll send it to a third one and then you can share with people if they're really interested. Five pounds only. <laughs> 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 All the contributions. <laughs> <laughs> only. Yeah, old, old numbers, yes. You've got to be very old. But in SubhanAllah, it's actually a mind-blowing book. It's one of those mind-blowing books. I, I used it to, to write uh, my research methodology. Like use some quotations from it. This is a brilliant, brilliant book. Anyway, going back to the to the to the tracing the, uh, of the etymological nuisances of, of, uh, of language, we need to look, for example, at how the Quran uses the am and the sana and the hawla and hujja. These four terms or four words are used to refer to twelve calendar months. So twelve calendar months. We call that a year, isn't it? In English, we only have a year. Um, but in Arabic, we have Am, and we have Hawl, and we have Sana, and Hujjah. These four, each one of them has got its own use. So for example, Am is the name of a year that is normally characterized with luxury and ease. While Sana is the name of a year that is characterized with difficulty. While Hawl is the name of a year that refers to actual change from the word hala hala to change right and hujja or hajja or hijja you can actually uh, say that this is a year that has something to do with proof contractual year so there's contractual year there is a year that involves change and wherever the quran uses each one of these it is of important and of significant use that falls within the context so when Yusuf السلام, was in prison with his comrades and he said he wanted to interpret the dream of Al-Aziz Misr, what did he say? He said, you will have to cultivate for seven sinin, seven years. Why? But seven sinin, plural of sana, difficult ones. After that, there will be a year, that, that will be full of luxury and full of ease and full of relief. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that mothers should feed their children, hawlayni kamilayn. That mothers should feed their children for two hawl. Why? Because over two years, you look at your child, you can't even recognize him or her. <laughs> Isn't it? When Musa alayhi salam was writing the contract, in technically not, but he was having a contractual agreement with Shu'ayb alayhi salam that he will work for him for eight years and ten years. Ala an ta'jurani tamaniya hijaj plural of hijjah, like because it's a contractual year. So you need to notice these differences and why is the Quran using them in such a, in such a way. Uh, I would prefer to give the remaining time for Q&A. Sure. Yeah. So that we, we stop here, inshallah. Let me just, before, before we go into the, the Q&A, these are like just simple tips. To, uh, to think about what should we do? How can we take this discussion out practically? practically yeah. yeah. Firstly, you need to start, regardless of, don't tell me you're weak in reading or anything like that. You have to have a daily reading of the Quran. Even if it's one ayah, even if it's like a few lines, you've got to have a, a daily reading. You, you, you should understand that the speed of reading develops with time. Like if you're able to read one page, like no one is born able to read at a higher speed. But people get accustomed to get used to things. Weekly study circle. I think Sidi Muhammad Sulaiman and Sidi Ridwan are in best position to 
lead that effort. Ridwan has been with me for years now. MashaAllah, Sidi Muhammad Sulaiman, I've known him for, for many, many years. So uh, if they don't do that, you come and complain to me. <laughs> if they don't, you, ha you already have something, Sidi Ridwan? Yes, we have. Alhamdulillah. So some kind of study circle. Possibly, Sidi Ridwan did, uh, he read the contemplating the Quran some years ago uh, on Facebook. And uh, when I was on Facebook, Alhamdulillah, Allah saved me from Facebook. I deleted my account about a, a year ago, deleted it. So, uh, so don't reach out to me on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. So um, I, I actually did uh, some live sessions of contemplating the Quran. Dr. Asim Yusuf as well. Yeah, uh, he, he did it last year. So he did a series. Last year as well? Yeah, every, every day. He was wow, doing it. He was this man is doing a lot of work behind yeah, my back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Learning Tajweed. MashaAllah, we have, uh, this is a good opportunity to advertise this. We have a, a bi-monthly Tajweed session, uh, kind of like going through Jazariya. So it's something that you can join as well. Looking to simplify Tafsir works, and I think this is, you won't find something more simplified than this. There is Sheikh Muhammad Al-Ghazali's Tafsir. Not Tafsir actually, it's kind of a thematic reflection on the Quran, but it looks at the surahs one by one. It's a good book, I have looked at it. But sometimes he goes away from the actual themes. It's kind of a, a, a simplification of the, of the ayat rather than, uh, again, you know, the controlling principles. He doesn't abide by the controlling principles. Listening to the Quran daily, I think playing the Quran uh, at home would be very, very good. I'll possibly give you a, a, the, the secret of how the Quran is played daily 24-7 in my house. Uh, one brother, Sidi Tariq, one knows him, I need to ask him what is that machine. He brought me this machine. It's technically like a, a loudspeaker. Yeah. Exactly that size. Exactly that size. It's very, very small. And you get a USB, yeah. put all the Quran on the USB and click it and then plug it in. It takes from the USB and plays. I have Husari and Minshaw. It just plays one khatm all the time. Finishes Husari and Minshaw. When it comes to Minshaw, even though I love Minshaw, but that's a mujawad min shawi, so I push it forward <laughs> to go back to Hosari. <laughs> Behind my wife's back. Because my wife did that when I was away. She put min shawi in it. <laughs> the only thing is that mujawad is not fully min shawi. Some people have actually read, claiming that they are min shawi. Oh. Taking up a Quranic Arabic course. You won't be able to increase your, your link with, uh, with, uh, with the surahs and with the, the, as I said, the nuances of Arabic language unless you, you engage with, uh, with Arabic itself. And studying the language of the Quran, I hope inshallah ta'ala, uh, inshallah when your Arabic is like really solid, then I can give you a list of books that, uh, that you can uh, look at. People uh, strongly advise, possibly Sidi Muhammad can look at that, Dr. Fadl al-Samurai. Dr. Muhammad Fadl al-Samurai, he's got a beautiful uh, series of books on uh, on the Tabir al-Qur'ani, on the, the Qur'anic expressions, the Qur'anic wording, and the, the rhythm in the Qur'an, and why is it like that? Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah Daraz has a book, The Eternal Challenge, I think. Uh, that's something that you can start with. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. If you have any questions as well, here is our admin email. They will forward the email to me. Barakallahu